Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Human Behavior Show, another podcast we're turning out today. And we have our resident psychiatrist back, Dr. Scott Muir, someone who's done a lot of shows, weekly shows with me over on other social audio platforms as well. And we've done some very recent interesting shows, one kind of diving into personality disorders, and we discussed Johnny Depp and help. And now we're back today to discuss something which is also really important, addictions. And addictions is a super interesting topic. Um, we can see it as kind of addictions like drug addictions, which um, you know increasingly people turn to when they do have periods of, of bad mental health or mental health illness or otherwise as well. Some people are seen, seen to be more addictive personalities, but then we have you know less clinical addictions, addictions to things like shopping, gaming, porn, so many different things that I want to kind of break down and work out what's happening in the brain, what's the neurobiology behind it. And we have the great Dr. Scott here to break that down, tell us what addictions are, why we get addicted to things, and how can we overcome them. So welcome again, first of all. Nice to have you back on the show. So I am uh, a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist by training. Um, I'm dual board certified, and I, although I did not do an addictions fellowship, um, I did spend my entire fourth year of general psychiatry residency as the senior resident on the uh, inpatient addictions unit at the hospital at which I trained with the addictions fellowship director <laughs> as my mentor. So um, it was uh, kind of an addictions uh, training on the cheap. Um, and, and, you know, I really feel like I'm basically standing in here for South Park. Because for people who are wondering, <laughs> there are a couple of South Park episodes. Uh, uh, freemium isn't free and uh, Make Love Not Warcraft that I think are in pop culture some of the best and most accurate uh, depictions of the neurobiology of fundamentally what's going on with addiction. Um, but I deal with people having all kinds of problems with with addiction to either substances or, or you know maladaptive behaviors. And uh, we can talk about it today. Brilliant. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so let's kind of kick things off then. So in terms of addiction, so a lot of, you know, popular psychoticals say we're in this type of, you know, addiction economy. Uh, I mean, technology is addictive. So many things around us are dopamine triggering behaviors. And uh, Scott, I'm going to start off with um, a podcast I did probably three or four years ago when I was at Always with Dr. Cameron Sipa, and he, he's not a medical doctor. He's a psychologist by training, and he has a, a bit of a contrarian view on a lot of concepts. He, he has, a, has a company on masculinity, etc. And he talked a lot about addiction on that episode. And he likened a lot of the addictions that happen. He thinks the world and the environment we live in today is to blame for our addictions and if we are giving into our addictions how they eventually lead to poor mental health and how we can almost use a concept which which is not medical by the way it's, yep. it's something that's coined i know you don't like this in silicon valley dopamine fasting <laughs> and if you fast from dopamine like you do from food it fixes your problems and so i'm going to start with a very controversial kind of that's not, kind of not, statement there and, and let you riff on it <laughs> and i'll tell you why um so uh People love to use neurotransmitters as an explanation for absolutely everything. And, and fundamentally, we have brains that are uh, you know, communicating neuron to neuron with neurotransmitters. 
And when we talk about addictions, just to break it down, there is a brain structure called the nucleus accumbens uh, that is bilateral. It's in the it's in the middle of the brain. It's very very deep, and that is the reward center of the brain. So it's it happens to be that dopamine is the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the nucleus accumbens, but that's the only place we give a damn about dopamine and, re- and reward because that's where it happens. Dopamine is used throughout the brain, just like every other neurotransmitter, uh, somewhat broadly, right? And they're, you know, in different areas and different parts of the brain, but dopamine is also regulating movement, go, no-go behaviors in the basal ganglia. Dopamine's covering a lot of ground. It's the nucleus accumbens, that, that structure, which is regulating reward. And it happens to use dopamine, but dopamine isn't some magical, happy chemical like, you know, you know your brain's cocaine. It's that dopamine is what is utilized in the nucleus accumbens to get that reward signaling happening. And we are fundamentally evolved uh, to respond to reward because that's how we know what to do. I, I love that explanation because, yeah, there's a lot of don't even know what dopamine is use it a lot and they think it's some type of you know on button and off button and you know too much dopamine is like calories and god knows what if you're okay with with me uh taking the why dopamine fasting is nonsense go for it please i I do want to hear that right um so our brains are constantly seeking seeking homeostasis getting back to the middle right and so anything we do if we have too much dopamine in the nucleus accumbens or too little dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, which is the only area it matters for reward, practically speaking, that is the final common pathway for all reward things. Um, other things may shoot there, like the periaqueductal grave or opiates, etc. But really, it's dopamine, nucleus accumbens, that's what we're talking about. And were you to somehow fast from dopamine release, which I don't think it's practically possible to do, you'd have an upregulation of responsiveness to dopamine. And if you have too much dopamine release there uh, over a you know too long of a period of time, uh, you're going to have down regulation of postsynaptic dopamine receptors. And so the up and down regulation of postsynaptic receptors and the uh, which is where the you know dopamine is released from one nerve terminal and it you know binds onto another nerve terminal to make that signal conduct. Really, we're talking about a dynamic system that's constantly up and down regulating its ability to be sensitive or sensitized the whole time. And so what addiction is about isn't so much having too much or too little of a chemical. It's about the compensatory changes that happen to help us get back to the middle, which when we have the context of behaviors that kick out more dopamine on average or less, et cetera, can cause changes in our baseline behaviors to keep up with how our brain is is changing to get back to the middle, which is its whole jam. Homeostasis is what humans do. Let's get back to the middle. It's like one giant seesaw. Um, and, and so it's less about, you know, fasting on dopamine. Okay, well, then you'd have, you know, if you could do that, which you can't, like, you know, breathing releases dopamine, peeing releases dopamine, eating food releases dopamine. <laughs> All these things constantly release dopamine, which is how we know what to do throughout the course of the day, which doesn't get us quite to addiction. But, you know, um, we're going to do stuff that is rewarding to us because that's how we're built. And we're going to get to a state of homeostasis when there's too much or too little of any given stimulation or compound in the system. Okay, so I'm glad that's been quashed. That was well well explained and then why some of these concepts coming out of tech are completely not biologically based so, what are addictions, Scott? Like, what 
causes to be addicted and then on that are some people more likely to become addicted than others and why so the fundamental difference and distinction i'm going to try to draw is that there are things we do that we don't like (laughs) we we look at and go "Ah, that's bad and and there are things we do that we don't like because uh we kind of find ourselves doing them because they are so rewarding and those things things that cause stimulation in the nucleus accumbens aka reward and when you pair that with negative consequences in our life, aka, you know, I sold all my things so I could have more uh, addictive drug or I XYZ, those things are in the realm of what we call uh, addiction, right? And addiction in, in my world as a, as a medical doctor is, I, I understand, as a biological substrate for why humans do stuff that isn't really in our best interest. I mean, I would agree. I agree with what you said there. Um, definitely is things which are definitely not in our best interest. And one of the common ones being drug addictions. Can you tell us what are the different types of addictions? What are some of the common things people are addicted right. and, to? And so uh, there's only one kind of addiction. <laughs> and the only kind of addiction there is, is more stimulation in the nucleus accumbens. Um, that's it. That's all that exists. We have different ways of getting at that. And we can do it with drugs commonly because they strongly trigger the release of dopamine in that structure. We can do it with, um, you know, all, all sorts of things that are kind of bad ideas, but there's a really kind of broad brush use of addiction. And I, I don't, I don't love that. So I'm just going to say an, an addiction fundamentally is a series of behaviors that have impacts in our, our personal life, our work life, our responsibilities. And those things uh, go to hell because our brain is busy telling us to do something our brain's good at, which is do more of that thing that gets you the reward. And so whatever that is to stay out of the weeds, that's what you're going to do. And that may be drugs. It may be sexual activity. That's a bad idea. It may be eating foods that are unhealthy. And we're not going to get into the weeds on, you know, whoa, does this count as an addiction? Well, there are things that count as problems that we pursue because of reward. And some of those we can frame as addiction, which has a certain neurobiology. So if we're doing stuff because it's rewarding in the nucleus accumbens, again, in that part of the brain, uh, and it's a problem in our life, that's what an addiction is. An addiction is a uh, addictive disorder, at least, is a problem doing things that we don't want to be doing because we can't stop ourselves because that's what the reward mechanisms have us doing. Um, I'm going to use an example of anisognosia. Anisognosia is the inability to know that one is sick. And so when you have a stroke, it can knock out half your brain and paralyze your arm. And there's some people who have a massive stroke like that, but not be able to recognize that their arm is paralyzed. And you'll lift the arm up as a neurologist and drop it. And they'll say, yep, I meant to drop that. As the arm drops lifelessly onto their chest. And you'll say, well, isn't your arm paralyzed? No. Right. And so we have this impairment of insight this inability to know that one is sick, which the rest of the world looks and goes, how could you not see it? And in addiction, our brains can't see almost axiomatically that what we're doing is problematic because the reward circuitry is driving us in a way that, you know, we tell a story that this is okay. I've, I've loved this way you've kind of broken down what addictions are and what they are and, you know, this, the science behind what's happening in, in the brain as well. Um, so it makes me beg the question, is there such a thing as an addictive personality? Um, are there people who are more it prone to addictions? If you books in, uh, in, in Hollywood, <laughs> then yeah. <laughs> I think that's where, where most people get it from. 
so practically, like I like we have we have genetic predisposition to addictive disorders. That's true. Uh, we have personalities. That's true. Some of us have impairments in our personality functioning. That's true. Uh, but addictive personality, as far as I can tell, is a way to sell books. Uh, uh, <laughs> not so much uh, a, a strong construct that holds up in different research settings and replication, blah, blah, blah. It's a good meme, right? Oh, I have a personality and I get a different <laughs> stuff. It must be. I think, yeah, a lot of people do use that as like uh, almost an excuse. So I remember Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, when it came out, you know, he had, um, I think it was sex addiction. Um, that they claimed and he went to rehab and came out. So is rehab the way to treat addictions? What are, what are the, what are the ways to overcome an addiction? And I guess before I ask that, I want to know <laughs> how quickly can we become addicted to something? Yeah. And, and so is, is rehab, like rehab is a way addictions are addressed. Um, are they, is it an effective route to not having that problem anymore? Um, I think the, 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 the answer is sadly, we have very little, uh, robust data to guide us. Um, and, and rehab has extremely high relapse rates. And that either means it's ineffective or it means the problem's a hard one to treat. Um, what we have had come out recently is some evidence that transcranial magnetic stimulation, a treatment that's working directly on the brain, um, is effective in both smoking cessation, right? That's an addictive disorder we all recognize. Um, bilateral stimulation of the insula while someone's being given uh, sensory stimuli that sensitizes them to their smoking, that causes a decrease in smoking behavior. And and, and so if that's rehab, I'm in, <laughs> right? So uh, often what's happening is we're trying to use these social, emotional, and behavioral contexts to help people stop doing a thing that's not what they want to be doing and not what we'd want them to be doing their brains may have something else to say. And I think these are difficult problems. I don't know that, you know, in a perfect world, treatments with extremely high rates of uh, relapse would be what we'd go into as first line. Relab, re rehab has extremely high re readmission and relapse rates. But again, is it because addiction is bad and hard to treat? Um, or is it because rehab doesn't really work? Uh, that is a, a thing where I don't know that it's possible to empirically answer that question, uh, at least to my satisfaction just yet. So recently, um, I think it was the the DSM criteria, if, correct me if I'm wrong, um, came up with gaming disorder, and, and that was an addictive disorder as well. What were your thoughts on that? <laughs> I have I have some very very uh, I'm I'm pretty addicted to this question because I, I submitted a talk on this many years ago at the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and was blocked by Viacom <laughs> because as I mentioned oh, no. in the South Park episode, uh, freemium isn't free where Stan sits down with Satan and Satan explains dopamine reward pathways and how to reinforce them. <laughs> um, was going to be great educational material, and yet we couldn't get the release. Um, internet gaming disorder is real. It's a real problem. Many kids spend much longer than would be uh, healthy or, 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 or good uh, playing video games because they are extremely well designed by very smart people to get them to do more of that than would be healthy. Now, the same can be said, I would argue, of Instagram and Facebook, the smartest people on earth have been tasked with getting us to spend two marginal extra seconds in a given interaction um, or, you know, eight hours in a row doing something that is highly engaging to our brands. 
and video games are designed to be highly engaging. For some kids who are more vulnerable or some adults, it's going to be even more engaging because our brains are tuned to reward, and so we'll do things that are rewarding more. But I do think internet gaming disorder is a problem because there are kids who spend 24 hours doing that, and it's hard to argue that spending 24 hours doing that and not doing any fundamental biological things like sleeping and you know eating enough or getting any exercise um, is a good plan for human organisms. So, uh, yeah, it's a problem. You know, disorder has a social context, and that certainly has one. So, so on that line, so what what are the best ways to prevent addictions developing? Are there things we can be doing um, to stop ourselves becoming addicted? Yeah, and so the most robust way to prevent addiction is identifying, you know, understanding addiction is a way uh, humans will kind of raise their hand and say, "I need help." It's a it's a, f- a marker for other problems, and and so by uh, assessing and and addressing other problems earlier, um, we can prevent the, the the development of lives that don't have all the other important stuff that can compete with highly rewarding video games and or drugs, etc. Um, ADHD treated in youth um, can reduce the, the rate of addictive disorders in adulthood. So that is a reliable and evidence-based way to reduce the rate of addiction in the population. Um, and I think developing more effective treatments and making them more accessible is going to be really important, as well as treating underlying conditions like, you know, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, et cetera, um, having effective treatments available for people who are suffering means turning to things that work uh, but are maladaptive becomes less appealing. Um, having a full, rich life that you don't want to let go of is a great way to not throw your life away on an addiction. But if you've got nothing there for you, then you know I don't see why people would want to walk away from feeling good. It's only when you look at you know, people who have a lot to lose in their life, that they have great rates of recovery from, from addictions. Um, doctors particularly, like we have medical licenses, we don't want to lose them. And so when we suffer from addiction, we have much higher rates of recovery and remission because we have so much on the line. And so giving people lives, helping them build lives where they have a lot on the line is, I think, the first line uh, against you know, broad addiction and then having, uh, you know, effective help available. I'm going to shift the conversation slightly and I'll apply this to the tech industry because I do a lot of talks on startups and pretty interesting kind of how behaviors or human behavior plays a part in how Silicon Valley designs products. And the Netflix documentary that was um, produced during the pandemic Love it. Talk, <laughs> yeah, talked about how tech companies, namely Facebook, had, um, you know, almost hacked the human mind, had designed their products in ways to make people engage in certain behaviors or act in certain ways. And, and we know popular books, you know, you know, Nir Eyal's Hooked, um, you know, we've seen BJ Fogg, the Stanford Persuasion Lab that was controversial at times as well, of how almost tech companies were looking to get people addicted to their apps and products. And there was ways of doing this. Um, and they were successful at times as well. So could you give us some more insight into your thoughts on A, that documentary? B, is it possible for us to design things to make people addicted? And, and what, are, what are the ethics around that as well? Uh, I think 
people trying to make their products engaging is what they're supposed to be doing. Um, <laughs> you know, I think we have a, a world in which a lot of effort was put into making us spend two extra seconds on Facebook and precious little time was spent thinking about how we could use the same principles to help us do stuff like, oh, I don't know, remember to take our meds, um, <laughs> go for a walk, right? Um, the, the human mind is endlessly adaptive and I, you know, I don't blame, uh, web two essentially for, for working out how to exquisitely interact with our brains in ways that's successful. I am disappointed that the rest of human endeavor, particularly in healthcare, has not taken those same problems seriously. And if we accept that the human brain is capable of remarkable amounts of a kind of dedication and focus to a thing, if it's rewarding or interesting or engaging, and we don't spend the time, you know, making engaging products across a variety of, of use cases, well, then we're only going to use the ones that are engaging. We're here to be engaged. We like engaging with things. That is not going to change. That's a fundamental part about being human. Now, you know, are we losing some of the Socratic pleasures of, you know, running around with our kids? Well, maybe, but I did that this morning and it was awesome. <laughs> right? Because it is <laughs> engaging and my children are doing a very good job uh, wearing their headphones and, and playing with their iPads right now, which I imagine are pretty engaging for them. Um, it's about, you know, balance and, 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 and recognizing that, you know, blaming people is nice and, uh, you know, cause it makes us feel good about ourselves. Um, maybe that's pretty addictive <laughs> feeling self-righteous, I guess I, Ooh, I am <laughs> so right. um, but we just have to understand that, that, you know, people are going to do stuff that's engaging People are going to try to build products that's engage, that are engaging. And we can also use those same principles to get humans doing more of the things that are engaging in ways that are healthy and productive um, for, for their lives. Because at the end of the day, it's not about having no engaging anything, which is kind of the argument of the, the, the you know, n- n- nouveau Luddites. It's about having enough engaging things across enough domains, I would argue, that are healthy and responsible. Um, you know, if we can't figure out how to make engaging health, pro-health products, well then, you know, that's on us. Um, the information's there. Facebook figured it out. Other Web2 companies figured it out. Why the hell are are major healthcare companies not using those same insights to get us engaged in doing stuff that is healthy and good? And, you know, that, that's, that, that's on us because we're not going to make humans not engaged in stuff. The one actually so-called addictive or engaging um, apps or be- behaviors on an app is actually swiping from Tinder. And a lot of people say how, I don't know a lot of people actually say this, that they got addicted to swiping endlessly, that they would even be in a relationship or enter one, but they they needed this, this, this reward of swiping, you know, this validation that you get. Um, so the number of people who remain swiping on a, on a, even a relationship, a, a dating app, when they're in a relationship, that, that can be dangerous for a relationship. And that's something we didn't have previously. So the internet has opened up, I guess, new behaviors, new rewards, as you call it as well. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on the, on, on the dating industry and and and, um, and and that behavior in that context? Yeah, I mean, you were working in that industry, if I if I recall. Yep, yep, yep. 
<laughs> so look, that's the thing that, that works pretty well, right? And and it works pretty well because it makes us imagine we have just endless, um, endless options of you know people who are attractive enough and blah blah blah. At the end of the day, you know, most people would not rather spend all day swiping on uh, Tinder. They would rather be in relationships and feeling loved. And so the short-term uh, addictive potential when we are lonely and other things aren't in our life of, of Tinder may be problematic. Um, but, it, you know, if we're, if we're not focusing on building real-life uh, relationships and real-life experiences that are able to compete with the short-term thrill of, oh, another option, oh, another option, oh, another option, we're not going to make those options not interesting. Is that a new uh, kind of shortcut? Sure. Does it, at the end of the day, hold a candle to feeling loved and connected? Probably not. And are we optimizing the wrong parts of the relationship experience? Maybe. Does this make, you know, infidelity more likely? Well, maybe, but also people were doing that for millions of years (laughs) before anyway, or tens of thousands. Um, You know, we we can demonize it all we want, or we can just accept that humans are going to do things that are engaging, and some efforts like, you know, Tinder and Instagram, et cetera, have taken that seriously as a design challenge and others have not. And so it, I, I would argue it's about using our understanding of human minds and behaviors to design better experiences for more robust longitudinal rewarding behaviors that can take those insights and turn them into better lives, not just more engaged in tender ones. So similarly, you mentioned social media, that social media addiction. Um, I was I was doing this Harvard entrepreneurship course whilst I was at med school. It's like their first online experience and you were live with the Harvard professor and there's like screens in their studio and it's pretty awesome. And they asked me the question about the ethics about Facebook and social media companies trying to you know, design and, and mental health in adolescents and you're a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Where do you where do you put the, the argument of mental health being the comparison against other people and seeing other people's lives making us all more anxious and depressed? Is, is that something that's true or just something that's said? Um, because I've also heard the alternative argument where people are like, oh, actually social media helps me be more connected where we don't have to put effort in, but we can still, you know, like social audio, for example, talk to people without needing to, you know, go out or all the other things that are needed. Um, where do you sit on that, Owen? Uh, I sit on the article Carlene wrote for the Frontier Psychiatrist Substack <laughs> from back nice. in the day about gamification. Um, I, I may, uh, um, the Frontier Psychiatrist, uh, maybe I can share the link with you and you can put it in the show notes. But basically, Carlene, uh, my, my wife, who's also a psychiatrist, wrote an article about gamification and kind of its limitations, you know, how thoughtful we need to be about how we gamify things and what is intrinsically rewarding, what we want to do anyway versus what we're kind of nudged to do. Um, and I'll say this. So, so you and I met, and, and I feel very connected to you thanks to the really remarkable design work done on Clubhouse and some of those subsequent challenges didn't didn't nail it the, the same way, and so we didn't keep using it to the same degree we might have had different choices been made. But I don't think that was time wasted. I've met a number of people who are real people in my actual life. Um, in, in person or not, these are collaborators, these are friends like, like yourself. And we would never have been brought together without that engaging tool that used our voices to help us feel connected. 
it didn't have endless thumbs going up, <laughs> right? Um, so there, there, there are challenges one way or another to how we do this and how we help us connect. And we have the confound of the pandemic, which is kind of hard to forget. Um, our brains are going to want to do stuff that engage the nucleus accumbens. We can forget that or not at our peril. Um, but if we don't keep in mind that, you know, making things appropriately engaging is part of the challenge of building any product for any, you know, use case, then people are going to use those things less no matter how good they are. And we want people doing stuff that's good for them and that they want to do. And a little bit of nudge here and there is not bad. Um, and too much of anything, well, is not enough of other things at the end of the day. So, so as humans, we seem to seek novelty and you see this one's a new app. Everyone wants to join um, the hype at the start and then it seems to wane and dwindle. And my, so with that, what's happening in the brain for when, you know, first when you you know start getting likes, the like button, it feels special and then it stops feeling that way after a while. Homeostasis. Homeostasis once again. <laughs> we get more of that input, right? We downregulate our response to it, right? We have a thumbs up. Okay, it feels. Oh, oh, oh I got a thumbs up. <laughs> and then, and then we get a thousand of them. Like, ah, oh, that was nice. A billion. Oh, okay, maybe <laughs> I should go for a walk. Right? We're down. We're. This is adaptive. This is not a f- failure. It's a feature. We're able to to have these inputs and not get carried to the moon with them. We'll have fall off in our engagement if the things aren't designed to work with what humans do in, in, in you know, the, the rest of the time. Um, it's not all about getting that, that, you know, rapid hit of pleasure in our brain and that's it. It's about sustained satisfaction being taken just as seriously as those rapid hits of pleasure. I think that's a perfect place to kind of round things up because I think this is a fantastic episode. I loved every minute of it and I do want to, ask you one question and it's slightly away from addictions it's dunbar's number uh, 150 social relationships we can maintain successfully or, or around then right there's circles of like you know five close friends and then you expand further out um and as we've gone online i think that may be modified or changed and we're exposed to so many people what are your thoughts on, on, on that theory and, and and um how many connections do you think we can keep you know, I think it's not so much, and you'll hear my daughter in the background, it's it's not so much like a race to try to keep as many social relationships as we ha- as we possibly can. Each person's going to have a different set point. Um, and, and there's a limit, you know, at any given time. One, these things are dynamic. So who's going to be the most important at one time and, and at another may be different. But I think more of the focus may want to shift to people who don't have any or have barely enough social connection because I'm less concerned about me maintaining, uh, you know, 150 relationships just perfectly placed in my orbit as I am about young people who have none and who don't get to feel close to anybody and who have no one they feel understands them because that's a real risk for their life. When you look at the criteria for recovery from something like borderline personality disorder, it's defined as meaningful work or school and remission of symptoms, as well as at least one relationship outside the family. That's a low bar for for many of us, but it can be a high bar for people who are suffering. And so I think there are basic skills around building and maintaining relationships over time that we take for granted and don't actively teach or cultivate 
in people who are more, more vulnerable or, or don't connect quite as easily. And so I think getting people from zero to one, <laughs> like, you know, like hydrogen, um, right, have that one electron road spinning around, um, that, that should be an area of focus uh, for us much more than worrying about whether we're going to successfully keep the 150th circling around the magnetic important person who can just have so many simultaneous relationships. As always, very well spoken. And and I agree with that. It's about the quality, um, about the relationship, not not the quantity. So that rounds us up for this show, guys. You had Dr. Owen, our resident psychiatrist, here with another episode. We'll have him back on. Super busy, but always takes the time and, and uh, I miss those episodes we used to do previously over on Clubhouse. And I'm glad we've started this up again. And I think this is better because we get to really without the distractions of having, you know, such large stages and a lot of, you know, people who, you know, come on stage and then just um, overcome it from the audience. It'll definitely we're open to questions and we'd love that in the future shows as well. But uh, Scott, where can people follow you finally? Uh, LinkedIn is good if they're in the business sphere. I'm an entrepreneur in, in health and medical spaces. Uh, Scott Muir, MD. And on Twitter, the same thing, at Scott Muir, MD. Um, feel free to follow me there. I'm not a big fan of the the, the meta platforms um, for many, many, many reasons. But uh, <laughs> those are those are uh, the engineering choices and design choices they've made don't don't suit my life. And um, so uh, follow me along for whatever I have to say on, 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 on Twitter. And I'm on a lot of podcasts and stuff. And anywhere Sohib is, I'll, you'll probably find me. Great. Awesome. Guys, do on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And do check that out. We did live on Colin Labs. So do download Colin as well. That's it from me. And I'll catch you in the next Human Behavior Show. Thanks, everyone. Bye.